this is John Gadam. Welcome to Stick to Wrestling. Today we are going to release something we recorded a couple of months ago. It is not a rerun. It's just something we have in the vault in case something happens and we can't record. And then a couple of months go by and we said, all right, time to put this show out. But before we get started, I want to wish everyone well. This is a really tough time, as we're all aware, and I'm just hoping that everyone and their family and their friends are are safe and well from all of this. And with that, I would like to bring on my convivial co-host, Sean Goodwin. Sean, how are you holding up in all of this? Uh, as, well, as well as can be expected, again, I uh, share your wishes uh, with everybody that, you know, be safe, be smart, good be habits. Smart. Yep, keep good habits because, I mean, what, you know, what, what you end up doing right now is probably going to carry over afterwards. So try to get in the, you know, into good habits right now. But that's it. Just you know, be smart and uh, be safe. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I also wanted to talk a little bit about WrestleMania that just happened last week. I liked the show. And when I say that, I say it without a qualifier. Like, I, like not, oh, given the circumstances, I liked the show. It was a two entertaining nights of wrestling. I recommend it. But there's one thing that I hated. And Sean, I'm hope, hoping we can talk about this next week. They did a, I don't even know what to call it. They did, they did a, uh, like a, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, like a graveyard match between AJ Styles and The Undertaker. And it was like a movie. And I absolutely hated it. I mean, I saw Red. This was so stupid. And the next night, they had something between John Cena and The Fiend that was similar, but different enough. So I absolutely loved it. And, I recommend everyone see these two things on WWE Network, just so you know what everyone's talking about. You know, in the 90s, I grew to hate WCW. I mean, in 98, I had a a pile of tapes just getting higher and higher. And I'm like, oh, my God, I don't want to have to go through this. I now have to watch two months of WCW because I've put it off. And then it dawned on me. I'm not Dave Meltzer. I am not Wade Keller. I do not have to do this. It was like such a great feeling I had. And part of me regrets that because, I mean, the Monday Night Wars were such a huge deal in wrestling history, and I just kind of, like, blew it off. I read about what WCW was doing in The Observer, and part of me regrets that, but part of me does not regret having to invest five hours a week in watching something that I hated. This, even if you hate it, you're only going to have to invest a total of about 40 minutes once, and, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it on the uh the facebook board i'll put something up and sean uh, i would like well, to invite not- you to write, watch those two segments and we can just talk about well, them a little bit next week i have one quick thing about this though uh, what you just said because i do know i haven't seen them but i knew, know this part of it they're trying to cover the fact that they don't have a crowd so they, I, I have no problem with them doing this because in theory if you're right which i'm not entirely sure you're right but in theory this is a one-time thing so you have to try different things because they have no idea what's going to work and what's not going to work. So, you know, just keep throwing stuff against the wall because, again, you're, you are trying to cover for something that's abnormal, which is going out there with no crowd. So how do you do that? This I was one of their ways they, and it didn't work. So I, I think they had these planned out anyway, because if you look at the nature of the matches, I mean, one of the matches was taking place in a graveyard, so no crowd anyway. And the other one was taking place in the Firefly Funhouse, which you couldn't have done live anyway. But yeah, that's I, the case, they're, yeah, they're stupid. Okay. I, like I said, I loved the Firefly Funhouse thing. And for whatever reason, 
I saw the graveyard thing, the boneyard match. That's what they call it. A completely different light. But I, I think everyone should invest like 40 minutes and see these two things. So anyway, off to the show we did a couple of months ago. I hope you enjoy it. It was uh, when life was a lot easier. Take care. A message to you, Rudy. Stop your messing around and listen to the Stick to Wrestling podcast every single week. I want to thank my friends in the specials for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. And my God, that song turns 40 years old this year. Yikes. My name's John McAdam, and if you give us 60 minutes every week, perhaps indeed we will give you a Raw Bone podcast. And sure, sure, there are some good wrestling podcasts out there, no doubt. But are they wicked good? I'll tell you what, let's ask the guys from the zombies. No, no, no. That's pretty conclusive. And with that, I just want to remind everyone, please follow me on Twitter. Just uh, look for the name John McAdam. Uh, follow the guy who has two dudes fighting with chairs on, on his avatar. And help me out on my march to a million followers. And with that, I want to bring in my convivial co-host, Mr. Sean Goodwin. Sean, how you doing this week? John's making merry with the FX machine lately. So, but more importantly to technology, our Facebook page, yes. which I say this every week. And yes, if you're not there, you should be there because it's just kind of like this hour, except extended with more people. You get results, YouTube clips, YouTube clips of us, YouTube clips of other matches, just a bunch of guys who have seen, watched and love old school wrestling. Yeah. And by the way, that YouTube channel is fantastic. It is added to our listenership quite greatly so i want to thank the arcadian vanguard podcast network and brian last for that yeah so definitely join our facebook page it's free then it's got all kinds of good stuff on it yeah it's a lot of really knowledgeable guys talking classic pro wrestling how do you go wrong anyway the theme for our episode this week was going to be where these promotions were when the wrestling war started and i grabbed a bunch of results from Christmas night, 1983. I only did that because Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve were on a Saturday. And usually Saturday is the day where you get the most results. I mean, obviously everyone's running Saturday night. No one's sitting at home. And it kind of didn't exactly do that. The idea was going to be, oh my God, look at all the guys Vince McMahon took from Georgia. Look at all the guys Vince McMahon took from everybody. And it's really not that, but we can go over the results and share stories about the guys um the first show now i did these in order of the promotions vince mcmahon seemed most intent to destroy and number one for good reason was the georgia promotion and that even though georgia had a really rough 1983 both artistically and at the gate they still had wtbs they were the only non-WWF promotion that was still on national cable. Vince had already bought out a Southwest Championship wrestling spot on USA Network. That wasn't even that powerful to, to begin with. Vince himself had Channel 9 out of New York, which is no longer a thing, but it was a big deal in, in the early 80s. And now you've got Georgia Championship Wrestling, now World Championship Wrestling, on every week on WTBS. And it is an extremely strong outlet. I don't think Vince had his sight set on buying it yet, but here we go. 
These are the matches that took place Christmas night, 83, in the Omni in Atlanta. Johnny Rich defeats Chip Donovan. Sean, give me some thoughts. Okay, so Johnny Rich, I believe, is Roy Rogers from Memphis, correct? That is correct. He is now being billed as Tommy Rich's cousin, which goes back to either late 81 or early 82. And he he got a, a decent push. And actually, this match probably happened in 1981 in Memphis. Oh yeah, because uh, that's when uh, Chick was get right around when Chick was getting his push when they had what they call like the Summer Gang Wars. Roy was part of that, so Roy was like the number four babyface at the time. Uh, and there was almost like they were looking for a chance to push him, but could never seem to get him over that hump. And you I've know, gone off and tricked on him enough times. No reason for me to do that again. Yeah, him, Johnny Rich. It looked like at this time, like his window to get pushed is closed because he i mean he was kind of riding tommy rich's coattails oh it's tommy's cousin hey and now tommy's starting to go underwater a little bit so now johnny rich is as well uh i don't think he was long for this promotion after that and he did well in, in some of the some of the smaller promotions he did okay in southeast championship wrestling he got a little bit of not even a push. He was just there in WCW in 1989 as a, a tag team. The, I forget his partner's name, but he goes, hey, I'm Johnny Rich, and I'm whoever this guy is, and we're the party patrol. I'm like, oh, no, these guys are not any kind of a party patrol. It was Johnny Rich uh, who did that spectacular bump for Sid Vicious, but at least they had work on a national basis. Next is a midgets match. Buzz Sawyer defeated the Sheik. Not the Iron Sheik. They brought Ed Farhat out of retirement, out of the old folks' home, whatever, to come wrestle at the Omni. I looked it up. He's 56, 58 years old at this point and looks every day of it. Quick aside on this. Didn't the Sheik and Oli very recently have a feud about Ohio? Yes, they, they certainly did. They had a feud about Ohio and Michigan, and just two years earlier— Sheik was wrestling in an outlaw in Georgia. You think this is part of any settlement regarding that? I doubt it. I mean, who's going to have a settlement that's like, oh, yeah, and I get to wrestle Buzz Sawyer at the I guess. I mean, I just – I have no idea. I know JCP used him again a couple years later, but that was in Detroit. Okay, and that was a a one-time thing in Detroit, and there was – you know, the, the famous part of that match was, as Jim Cornette will tell, is the beginning. When he came out in the court, you know, in the Cadillac, and you know, but I mean that that's that's a situational thing. I have no idea, and I get it doesn't say it here, but it appears that there's a step to this that if he could beat the Sheik, then he gets Ellering at the end of the match in the Texas Death Match for like five minutes, one of those jobs. Uh yeah, that, it was Ellering who brought in the Sheik to go after the newly turned Buzz Sawyer. We'll get more into that later, but I mean, even as a non-smart fan. Watching, I mean, this, you know, people can say, oh, it was just, come on, they brought him in once, he was on TV once, he did one match, it was one more appearance and one more match than he should have had, he's too old, and he hadn't been in Georgia, at least in Georgia Championship Wrestling, I think since 78 or 79, so no one's going to remember the guy, all you have is this old-timer out there calling himself the Sheik, it was ridiculous. And you have Buzz on gas, you're basically just you know, dragon ass at this point. Buzz is one of these guys who needs to go to a different territory stat. He looks terrible right now. I mean, him and, you know, Rich too. Rich looks worse. 
it, it just it's it, this is just, just this looks awful. And how do you how much how much you want to bet that she didn't do actually a pin on this? Oh, there's some kind of oh yeah, there's something stupid that happened. He still wouldn't do a pin at 56 because you never know that big payday. He's got Hogan. <laughs> Next match up, and I was bought a ticket to see this: Les Thornton against Tommy Rogers. If you don't know Les Thornton, Les Thornton is Dean Malenko with more personality, funnier, pleasant, and English. <laughs> and he was a hell of a trainer, too. I mean, yeah. I always liked Les Thornton's style. He was an excellent yep. wrestler, billed as the NWA World Junior Heavyweight Champion at this point. And Tommy Rogers, man, he was always good. Here's a guy who should have had way more of a career. Yeah, Tommy would have been a great tag team with the perfect guy. Because he just—he was kind of like that little Robert Gibson on uh, on interviews. I mean, it, it, he, you know, that wasn't that good. But in the ring, he's great. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you because I—how old is he here? Oh, he's got to be. I mean, I want to say twenty three, twenty four at this point is is my best guess. Um, you know, really, really sad what happened to him because I guess he got into a fight with a cop and he might have been going to jail and he wound up passing away. I mean, I've met, I've been around Tommy Rogers a couple of times and what a nice guy he was. Yeah. He even got to run an ECW. Yes, he did. And he, you know, he was a little bit small, no question. He yeah. was small, but he was a good looking guy and he could wrestle. And I, you know, the Fantastics were a great team. I'm not saying anything, you know, Oh, well, all he did was the Fantastics. Well, you know, the Fantastics, got a nice push in world class they got a nice push in the nwa in 88 but after that there just wasn't much and you know i, I wish both tommy rogers and bobby fulton could have done more yeah tommy's kind of not as good but tommy's kind of a lesser version but the style like stylistically of like a ricky steamboat but to do that style and to be successful you first have to find a rick flair and then you have to be so outstanding at it that you can get away with the failings as, you know, as far as not being your kind of, he would be a better babyface 10 years earlier. Yeah. And you know what? I mean, there's, there's a world maybe where he could have been a heel in a midnight express type tag team. Mm. I don't know. Uh, NWA national TV title match, Brett Sawyer over Jake Roberts. I'll, I'll get more into the Sawyers later, but I mean, this is a pretty big win. For Brett Sawyer, I mean, he had gone from being kind of a mid-card guy earlier in the year, and now they've revealed that he is Buzz Sawyer's brother, and he is getting a, a pretty big push at this point. So was it ever found out what Ole was doing in the pictures that Brett had of him? Brett had pictures of Ole. I'm assuming because now he has two titles in Georgia. Why is he getting this ridiculous push? He's David San Martino. He, no, no way. Okay, he's a little better than that, but not much. He he was over in his role. Like I said, they thought that the revelation that he was Buzz Sawyer's brother, right as Buzz was turning, and you know he was a good-looking guy. He could do some stuff. He had a nice drop kick. I thought he was over pushed here, especially in hindsight. But, you know, he was right now on December 25th, 1983. Everything's fine. This might have worked. Okay, now I'm a little rough on him at this because of this. Well, not it's not even his fault. If you put him with Buzz like two years earlier, this may have worked. But Buzz is on fumes right now. What rub are you going to get off of him? I, I don't know if Buzz was on fumes. Buzz oh, was on I fumes. So. I mean, you know. 
probably literally, but well, I I didn't mean it that way, but I meant he again he was like rich. The axe seemed a little tired at this point. He needed to go someplace else. But he had just turned. He had j- literally just turned. I want to say six or seven weeks beforehand, and Oli had put a lot of stock into Buzz Sawyer's turn, and you know he was going to be George's lead baby face, believe it or not. He, yeah, how'd that work out? Uh, it didn't work out well at all because Oli fired Buzz about a month after this. And, I, you know, not to get on a tangent, but did Buzz do something that was worth getting fired over? I don't know. But what I do know is that Oli fired way too many guys. Like, no one else was on a firing spree like Oli was in 82, 83. I have a feeling that Rolly found out he had a locker room problem way after everybody else did, and at the same time. I, so I he, so as cared. opposed to as opposed to like oh, he probably didn't. It was like one of those you know hope for ignorance things and don't look. But by the time he had a look, it got so out of control that he had to unload everybody. So then he Maybe. just started firing everybody. I, I kind of looked at it as something like that. If you look at Buzz in '81 and Buzz at this point, it's just not the same guy. It just, it's, it's, I don't know, maybe it's just, he kind of felt like he was living off of his reputation at this point. Well, I mean, you know, he was a, a really good heel for a while, and they finally got around to turning him. The big reveal that Brett was his little brother sort of ignited it, or at least was a big part of it. And Buzz was supposed to get a big, big push. I mean, I don't want to say he was going to be George's, or they wanted him to be George's answer to Hulk Hogan, but they wanted him to be the lead baby. And yeah. it, it almost felt like I don't want to pick on Oli too much because I'm going to. It's almost like Oli was more concerned about showing you that he didn't need you than he was about running a successful promotion. They brought in Brett to JCP to do this little tag team here. How long did that last? And they even did the whole bit where they had you know Brett get injured and everything. Yeah, they had JCP had so much faith in. Brett Sawyer that they did an angle where Arn Anderson attacks Brett Sawyer and instead of it leading to the Andersons against Buzz and Brett Sawyer, it led to the Andersons against Buzz Sawyer and Dick Slater. But the bright side of this is that eventually Jake will win and this will lead to the outstanding Jake Roberts and Ron Garvin feud. Yes, it would. And by that point, both the Sawyers were gone. Let's pick on Oli some more. Loser leave town match. The NWA National Heavyweight Championship decided between Ted DiBiase as he defeats Tommy Rich and sends Tommy Rich packing from Georgia, or so we think. 1982, we have a junkyard dog losing a match unfairly, having to leave town, coming back as Staggerly. We have Dusty Rhodes losing in the loser leave town match unfairly and coming back as the Midnight Rider. We have Chris Adams not losing a loser leave town match, but you know surprising Jimmy Garvin under a mask as the Avenger in some point in '83, uh, and then Jimmy Valiant loses a loser leave town match, and it's not fair, and he comes back as Charlie Brown. Uh, I want to say this was like summer or fall 1983. Am I forgetting anyone, Sean? <laughs> I think I've got no, but I will say there's a key difference in all of those guys and uh, Mr. R. As we, I believe he was known as. Was Tommy, that it? Tommy Rich comes back as Mr. R. Now, of course, the babyface coming back under a mask thing has been uh, a, a national, 
don't know, sensation. I mean, the WWF didn't touch it, the AWA didn't touch it, but kind of everyone else did. And, oh, that's right, Ricky Morton and Ken Lucas surprised Gino Hernandez and Tully Blanchard by coming in under masks as, like, two unknowns that beat them. So this gimmick has kind of been beaten into the ground by now, and Ole says, hey, I should do this now. And now he brings Tommy Rich back as Mr. R. I will say that the match they had on TV, Mr. R against Ted DiBiase for the national title, where Tommy Rich comes out laughing at Ted DiBiase, Mr. R rolls up DiBiase, and it turns out Mr. R on this day is Brad Armstrong was kind of cool. I mean, I could see right from the start that, okay, this guy's way too small to be Tommy Rich, but it was a cool angle. Yeah, no, one was way too much of an athlete. Uh, It was an act of desperation. Okay, the difference between Tommy Rich and all those other guys is the fans didn't want those other guys to leave. Now, you can say that we did a show on the previous Omni show before this. We saw what, because this was one of the hidden gems, was the Omni show before this and after the last... uh, Last Battle of Atlanta. Thank you, Last Battle of Atlanta. And he looked terrible. I mean, he was he was in against DBS. He was blown up. The best thing they could have done here was actually let him leave, send him back to Memphis for like six months, maybe a year, and then bring him back. The worst. Well, I guess why not bring him back under a mask if you got to keep him and try to do that. You had to do something because anything was going to be an upgrade about what they were doing. Well, here's the thing: Tommy Rich came back to Atlanta like March, April, 1981. Uh, And he had been there ever since, and he had been going downhill ever since. I mean, he'd lost weight. There were times when Tommy would get on TV, and there's no other word. He was incoherent. And, you know, after three years, you run as a baby face. I mean, you get stale. What can you say? But Ole liked Tommy Rich. He liked Tommy. Tommy was reliable usually, but not always. Um, I remember... In 82, like Buzz Sawyer, uh, Buzz Sawyer, Roddy Piper and Tommy Rich were showing up really late every night, and Ole decided to cut bait with Piper instead of Rich. Big mistake, you know, looking back on it, but I think that's it. Like, you know, Ole probably saw Tommy the way he, Tommy was in 81, not the way he was now at the end of 83. Uh, see, I, I'm not too sure, because I think the, if that's the case, then you're not bringing him back under a mask. Uh, I think maybe the mask thing is a heads up to him. Like, look, I got to do this to get you over because this is what it's come to. You can't get through a match. So maybe it's almost like a shock therapy to Tommy at that point. I still think the best thing Tommy could have done right here at this point is head off to Memphis to do six months. Well, he he wasn't far from doing that. But uh, I mean, the Memphis paychecks were a lot less than the Georgia paychecks. It doesn't matter. He He always woke up in Memphis, though. I just mean mental. Because he's not checked in here at all. He was always checked in in Memphis. Like, he could be crap before and crap after. But once he hits Memphis, he's great. And you know what? This this was not a shock therapy angle. This was only, like, you know, seeing what everyone else is doing. Hey, this is a a moneymaker in other territories. (laughs) Okay, who can I do this with here? Tommy, come on over. Let's do this. Then he's lost his mind. Then Then he did not watch the previous Omni show. And you cannot look at that previous Omni show and look at him as your number one baby face. He was blown up in less than a minute. Yeah, I only I think the business had passed him by by this point. I mean, earlier than this point in 1983. And he just saw Tommy as the way he did in 80, 81, 78, 79, whatever. The Road Warriors were defeated by the makeshift tag team of Stan Hansen and Bugsy McGraw. 
by the way, the WWF did want Ted DiBiase. Uh, supposedly, they offered him a deal in 1984, and very rarely did Vince McMahon say to one of the wrestlers, here's what I will do with you. It's like, sign the contract, and we'll see what happens. Supposedly, he promised Ted DiBiase a run with the Intercontinental title, and DiBiase decided to stay in Georgia and Mid-South. Well, it's, that would be the obvious choice to me. I mean, even a couple of uh, good, you know, him and Hogan be, would be great at that point. If you give him that Georgia heel bit that he was doing, which is just, just totally psychotic, uh, yeah. uh, vicious, over-the-top heel, worse than anything he's done in Mid-South. Oh, way, I mean, way worse. Yeah, way worse. I mean, and I think DiBiase, obviously, in the long run, was smart in waiting. The story I heard straight from Ted DiBiase was, he saw what happened at WrestleMania 3, and he said to Bill Watts, Bill, I want out. Please let me out of my contract. And Watts told him, hold still. You know, we got stuff going on. And, you know, Crockett bought the UWF, and he told everyone, hey, if you want to leave, you can leave. And the Million Dollar Man was born, and I think Ted did better with that gimmick, financially at least, than he would have jumping to the WWF in 84. But I bring that up because the Road Warriors talk about the ultimate WWF tag team and i'm a little bit surprised they didn't go yeah uh you would you would think they would why wouldn't he i'm trying to think they ended up going to the aw they were about to leave but they ended up going to the awa they were still around georgia until right around the time vince mcmahon bought ollie out they were still on television with ellering and that's when they left for the awa and quickly became awa tag team champions and I mean, I have no idea why they didn't jump other than maybe it would have been good strategy to wait until, you know, like DiBiase, like the WWF. Okay, we need a hot new tag team. You're not one of 40 acts that Vince McMahon brought in, you know, during one calendar year. I mean, could it be just financially? Because, I mean, it's I remember uh, he had trouble really kind of closing the deal in Georgia with the TV station because of, of money issues. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not saying, but that's a lot to pay for a tag team that you're not going to have at the top of the card. Yeah, but I mean, are, are we talking what AWA here? No, we're talking when if he goes to the WWF. I, I mean, the Road Warriors were the hot new act, and they had WWF written all over them. And it's but they still weren't going to be a main event. I don't know that. I mean, you could have had maybe Hulk Hogan and someone else against the Road Warriors. I guess, but then at some point you'd want to single him off. I, I guess that's the spot where you do that with Hawk then. Maybe. I, I guess it, it's, it's, it works out so differently, it's hard to imagine. If the, if the WWF had brought the World Warriors in like 86, 87, I think they would have been a huge deal. When they brought them in in 1990, I mean, people forget they were in main events. They had... I mean, they, it was the Ultimate Warrior and the Road Warrior, excuse me, the Legion of Doom now against the three-man demolition team. And these were this was the main event in, uh, in major arenas. I think they did Madison yeah. Square Garden, too. Oh, I'm thinking like he goes to the WWF as opposed to the AWA. I'm thinking back in 84. No, right. Uh, no, I'm saying the same thing. Like, I am surprised yeah. they didn't go to the WWF in 80, you know, now, in 84, when, you know, Vince is, is opening up. But, I mean, who what happens? What the Say they do. Are. Say they do. What happens? How do you play that out? I don't know. I mean, I, I make them tag team champions for sure. I make them dominant tag team champions. But as far as like exactly how I would book them, I mean, really, I would book them as the heel tag team Hulk Hogan. I bet uh, uh, Hawk gets a run. 
Maybe. I mean, I, I've Hogan, said I mean, not, not winning, but I mean, I bet he gets the main event run against him. I've said it before. I think Hawk underutilized himself as being part of this tag team. He should have gone off and been a single. Yeah, it just, I, I, it's, it's again, it's difficult for me to separate them mentally. I, I have just seen them together. There, it's almost like it's like Gorbin and Goliath. You know, you always, you know, even though Gorbin had a great singles career, it's I, I just always associate the two of them. Yeah, I, I think if if Hawk had broken off earlier, oh like, yeah, you know, eighty six, eighty seven, it still could have been done. Anyway, oh, I last... think it could have been done. I just have a bias against it because I can't yeah. imagine it any differently. All right, so. One, one last chance to bag on Ole and his stupid booking. Lights out hair match. Buzz Sawyer against Paul Ellering. Paul Ellering was, he was ridiculously overpushed in 1983. And here we go with the whole, and they did it with Ole Anderson against Paul Ellering. And now Paul is back like four weeks later to get his butt kicked again in the Omni. This time by Buzz Sawyer. And this time he gets his head shaved and, Paul Ellering would never really have hair again. This is the last offshoot of the Rich and Sawyer feud. And it, basically, he really wasn't part of it until, for some reason, you had to get Ole into that feud. And all of a sudden, Paul ends up into it. And, you know, and you end up having Paul hung over the cage in the five minutes with Ole. And then you have this. In their defense, they're finally blowing off all this stuff. So that's kind of why all these guys are available at once. Because all, if you look at the matches we're going to be doing, they're all kind of blow off of, of feuds. But this thing went on forever. No, and it, it was it was. I never thought much of Paul Ellering as a manager. No. I will say this, you know, Buzz or as a shaved, worker for that matter. No, yeah, he was great at being a short bodybuilder. Uh, but one thing that threw me about this, it was a hair match, and Buzz like legitimately shaved all the guy's hair. And Paul Ellering comes out, I was I don't know if it was the next week or the week after, and he's wearing a hat. And Gordon Sully says to him, uh, Mr. Ellering, would you be uh, so kind as to remove your chapeau? And Ellering just took his hat off. <laughs> like, hey, I'm like, hey, this is wrestling. You don't do that. But he did it. When Paul Jones lost his hair, he ran around in a dumb hat forever after that. And Ellering just, yeah, sure, I'll take off my hat. <laughs> I don't know. Well... I, I you have more. I've already lost interest in this whole angle by the time we even got to that point. I don't even remember this. Yeah, it's Georgia had a very very rough 1983, and well, it turns out it, it was be be even rougher 1984. I was gonna say it didn't get any better when you mentioned that that you know the list of people that you know Vince wanted to take out. This is just for the TV. They didn't need any help going down. They were going down one way or the other. Yeah, and I, I've mentioned this before. I mean. Vince got started early on Georgia. He's already, I mean, in 82, he took the Samoans and they left with no notice. He's already got Orndorff. He's already got Tito Santana, Iron Sheik, Ivan Koloff, and everyone else that I I forget he raided from Georgia in in 83. So he got off to an early start. Look at this card. What happened? The guys who are good are leaving. The Briscoes were right in what they did in a business sense. Yeah. because it's not like they were the difference. This was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Ole, in his book, which I you know, I guess I'm not done picking on Ole, I read his book. I found it very difficult to get through. And one of the, the really dumb points he made, he said that the, the Briscoes sold 25% of their stock to Vince McMahon for a million dollars, which made the company valued at $4 million. Then four years later... Turner bought the company for $9 million, 
So the Briscoes lost out on like 225% of what they could have got. It's like, no, they, the company wouldn't have been worth $9 million with you running it four years later, Oli, for God's sake. $9 million in total? Yeah. Then if they had 25%, that would be $2.5 million. Yeah, two hundred two hundred twenty five. So you're right back where you were before. <laughs> so well, I yeah, I guess. I mean, it's it's I again. You're right. They would have gone bankrupt. I mean, it's to to sit there and like you would have been around for another couple of years. Yeah, you're around because you got absorbed into JCP basically, or however you want to call it. Uh, it's but that that on their own they were not going to survive. The product just was. They were in trouble ever since the Omni opened up and the the city auditorium closed. We we we've discussed about you know this in in length. But it's it, the product just wasn't good. I mean, they were losing their good guys. The guys who were staying were either head cases or way over the hill. I mean, it just wasn't a compelling product. No, and, and the, the booking was absolutely awful. But yeah. all right, the AWA Christmas night, 1983, 18,000 people came out to see this. Opens up with everyone's pal, Buck Rock and Roll Zoomhoff, defeating Bill White. I had no idea Bill White was in the AWA at this point. But everyone's friend, Buck Zuma, I, I don't even get what the appeal was with him at all. No. And how Before, old is Bill White here? Oh, God. You know, the more I think about it, I mean, he was in the WWF early 70s, so he's still hanging around doing the opener. By the way, yeah, we're doing these in order of, like, Vince wanting to destroy these promotions. Oh. Vince had already, by this point, uh, Hulk Hogan had defected. Dr. D. David Schultz had defected and... I mean, I want to say most importantly, because he's not as important as Hulk Hogan, but Gene Okerlund was a, the WWF getting him for television purposes in the Midwest was a huge deal. Okay, I, I'm looking at this card, and there are at least uh, eight guys who were in line early at Denny's. Okay, um, this is an old card. Yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> next match up, we have Billy Robinson against Brad Rangans, two guys the WWF wouldn't have been interested in at this point. I saw Billy Robinson. Billy Robinson was an all-time great, no questions asked, Observer Hall of Famer. I saw him in 85, and he looked absolutely awful. He was old. He was chubby. Could have been much better like 14, 15 months earlier. Billy was always kind of in that uh, kind of in a weight issue. I mean, if he was on, even when he was on top of it, he didn't look like a bodybuilder or anything. Yeah. So it was easy for him to kind of let it go. But I mean, when he was on his game, like say in like the early mid seventies, picture like Scott Steiner. I mean, not the kind of athlete, but I mean, those kind of moves he was, he would do this one move where it looked like you were going into like a, a, like maybe a backdrop suplex or a atomic drop. And he would just drop you into a backbreaker. Yeah. It was like, what the hell was that? Billy Robinson was an English Jack Briscoe who liked to play really rough. And he would just, yeah, he would just, you would pull out of moves like out of nowhere that you've never seen before. Uh, And he had that, there was where the stock kind of reference I was coming from, where he would just have these moves that no one else did, just him. But yeah, at this point, and Rangans was slow on a good day. So this, giving 20 minutes to these guys must have been, the first thing I pictured was it was an episode of Cheers. Where Norm decided to fight for Vera's honor or something. And the two guys got into a wrestling match. And the other guy's the same size as Norm. And basically, they both sat in the head scissors for three minutes. And um, Cliff looked down and said, not exactly Frazier Ali, is it? <laughs> That's, that is what I'm thinking happened here. Well, Brad Rangans was a guy, you know, was unlike a lot of guys who said that they were going to 
you know, win the gold medal at the Olympics in 1980 when, you know, we decided not to go to the, the United States decided not to go to the Olympics. Uh, you know, unlike Kerry Von Erich, Brad Rangans really was at least had a chance to be on the U.S. wrestling oh. team. And oh, my, my teasing is this guy's legit. This guy's a legit bad man. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And this is why Vern was really liked him, wanted to push him. And Brad just did not have the charisma to get over. He was with the WWF in like 88, 89, clearly just as another body taking, you know, filling out the card. He was Dan Severn. He was Dan Severn before Dan Severn. Uh, you know, he, you know all, all, you know, as far as like the actual work in the ring, completely legitimate, completely bad man. And, you know, but he just, there's just something missing. Uh, you know, there's something missing in the ring, a kind of a charisma, not charisma in a way. It just, it's just something doesn't, not clicking. And I could see this being oh, 20 minutes seems like an awful long time for these guys. Yeah, I, it's one of those things like the like unlike Kurt Angle, he just never like figured out the transition between pro wrestling and, you know, wrestling is a legitimate sport. Thank you. Next up, Rick Martell, not AWA champion yet, defeats superstar Billy Graham by disqualification. I had no idea Billy Graham was with the WWF at this point. Rick Martell seemed like almost a perfect WWF guy at this point, but he didn't go, obviously. And I think one reason is he became AWA champion uh, a few months later. Well, this is what I was going to ask you. I'm thinking because I don't remember Graham being in the AWA at all. So I, were they bringing him in for the occasion or? Well, they might have been. Graham was kind of a big name in the AWA, like 74-ish. Sure. Uh, so they might have been falling back on that. And he was all in the, well, the reason I'm asking is because if they already knew, and from what you just said, this is why Rick didn't go. If they already knew that, you know, they were going to give Rick the belt, you're going to bring in a superstar Billy Graham to have him go over to give the guy some legitimacy. Because yeah, also, true. also you would have seen him in the magazines because when he was WWE champion, he was in every magazine seemingly. Yeah, he was very photogenic during that period of his career, and he frequently was on the cover of magazines. So, yeah, maybe they were falling back on that, and as a result, this might have been a very big win for Rick Martel. Next up, Jesse Ventura against Steve Olsonowski. Jesse Ventura, perhaps the ultimate WWF guy, and Steve Olsonowski, the antithesis of a WWF guy. Was I, I, I'm actually surprised Jesse's still here. When, when was Jesse gone? Jesse left summer of 1984. Because he, I was going to say, he was main eventing against Hogan in 84, and then he got the blood clot, and he was done, and he became an announcer. Was, that was the scenario. This all happened before 1985, right? Uh, yes, it did. As a matter of fact, I have no idea how I remember this date, but September 10th, 1984, at the tiny little ice arena up in Manchester. No, it wasn't an ice arena. It was the Manchester – I can remember the date, but not the name of the building, but this crummy building in Manchester, New Hampshire – where I would get to see two guys who 15 years later would be household names, Hulk Hogan against Jesse the Body Ventura. And what, what was the plan for Jesse? If he, Because obviously, I mean, he was getting significant main events against Hogan before, you know, they'd already broken up the tag team. That, you know, um, uh, Adonis was with, was with Murdoch, and he was getting shot. So did they have like, um, was he, did they expect to get a decent run out of him against Hogan before they he did. got the uh, injury? I mean, if they're putting you in the main event, Madison Square Garden against Hulk Hogan, I mean, you're doing something right. And especially this is 1984 where they're bringing 
one guy after another back into the WWF, and they picked Jesse over all those other yeah. guys. And they broke up a tag team that was very successful for the very purpose. What? How do you think this plays out if he stays healthy? Where is? Let's put it this way: Where is Jesse's role in WrestleMania one if he's healthy? Uh, that's a good question. I think he would be on the show. I'm not exactly sure where. Uh, they didn't break up Adonis and Ventura when um, after '82 when they left. Uh, it was really never acknowledged again that they were a tag team. Oh, it's two though separate they were things. Both okay, in the territory. I didn't. I didn't realize it was two separate things. Okay, I didn't know they they brought him in once and brought him back again. No, uh, Jesse left like July '82. I want to say left the WWF. Basically went back to the AWA. Had a tag team with Mr. Saito, the Far yep. East West Connection, and then they he came back to the WWF when it was time. Uh, all right, well, then we've got well, one, one, uh, one quick question about Steve-O. Where has Steve-O gotten pushes? I know he got a big push in Georgia. He got a little bit of a push in the AWA and kind of a, a big push in Georgia, and that's all I'm aware of. Did any of it work? Because Georgia didn't. No, and he had some weird staph infection going on with his hand and his wrist that didn't clear up. And I, I think, if I recall the story correctly, it affected his overall health. He never really got over that. He looked like, just if you looked a picture of him, like the perfect late 70s heel. Uh, baby face, I mean. Yes. And But there was just, again, there was this, some a disconnect to him. Yeah, he was a good-looking guy. You know, Steve, oh, oh that sounds kind of cool. And yet he just didn't have... He didn't have that it factor. Okay, we, we, okay. let's get to this mess next. What is this? This looks like let's get a bunch of baby faces together and have them beat up Sheik Adnan El Casey's guys. Greg Gagne, Baron Von Raschke, Ray Stevens, and Jim Brunzel. So we've got four baby face AWA mainstays all going back to at least the mid-70s, and, and actually most of them are, are before mid-70s, defeating Ken Patera and Jerry Blackwell, who were managed by Sheik Adnan LKC, and I think they were still the AWA Tag Team Champions at this point, and Mr. Saito. So you've got kind of a mess. It, it looks to me like, okay, let's see the manager Sheik Adnan get beat up by the good guys. I don't know. Okay, so Greg and um, Bronzella, 35 here. Baron, parents, parents, 43. I'm older than the Baron. Oh, my. Oh, my God, dude. Are you kidding me? I'm older than the Baron. I, that, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with that. I don't even know what to think about that. that I'm older than the Baron. But the Baron's 43. Stevens is 48. Patera's 40. When's Patera leaving? Patera would go to the WWF June or July 84, I want to say. Okay. And um, who else? We have uh, Brunzel's out the door soon. Yeah, Jim Brunzel. No, actually, Jim Brunzel went to the WWF, I want to say, May, June 1985. So he would still be around for a while. If there's a world record for opening the most cards in history, they may have it. The Killer Bees were like the opening for every card for about a year, it seemed like. Yeah. Oh, another one who left for the WWF, Jerry Blackwell. I specifically remember... He was announced as on uh, Tuesday Night Titans. They're like, oh, next week we're going to have uh, Crusher Jerry Blackwell here. And I was like, oh, my God, another AWA guy. And that's just gratuitous. What's that? I said, that's just gratuitous. I understand why you're bringing, like, Crusher in Milwaukee. Okay, I get it. It's the same thing as bringing the Sheik in Detroit. But you're bringing in Crusher Blackwell. After everything you've taken, what are you going to do with Crusher Blackwell? 
Uh, you know what? They figured it out as they went, but uh, Black Hole is still pretty good at this point. And the story I heard, because they said, oh, yeah, next week on TNT, Crusher Jerry Blackwell. And then, well, the next episode comes and goes, no, no Blackwell. And the story I heard was his first day in, they were doing interviews, and the interview day was always painful. It was incredibly long. There was a lot of sitting around, and Blackwell just got fed up with it and went back to the AWA. Oh, no, no. I'm, this isn't a dig against Blackwell, but I'm just saying, look at their roster. You have guys who are main event people in other territories who are just sitting around. Yeah. Or, I mean, like, doing nothing particularly major. I mean, grabbing this guy is just to kind of screw you kind of to the AWA. Oh, everything. Don't Make no mistake, and that's a big point I'm making. The, the WWF did as much as they could to inflict harm on other promotions. And that's, you know, especially Georgia because they were on cable, especially the AWA because they were doing so well at this point. Okay. What did they do to Georgia really? As opposed to the AWA. I mean, they just, they got the AWA good, but, um, they took Georgia's TV. Oh, they took the, yeah, but they (laughs) killed the territory right there. Their territory is well on the way to killing themselves by the time that happened. You know what, though? Here's the thing. And I always say this when WCW finally went under, like to me, it was a sad day. I hadn't watched WCW in three years because they sucked and I hated them. Exactly. I hated them for 10 years. Now, the AWA. My my point, though, is that as long as WCW was around, they had the chance to turn it around. Once WCW was gone, they had no chance to turn it around. That applies to Georgia. As long as they're on TBS, you get the right guy in there. There's a chance they can turn it around and threaten you. Now that's gone. It's never been as bad as it was there. I mean, at least the, the AWA in like late 82, early 83, that wasn't a bad product. I mean, they still had, you know, there were still problems. But that it was, a, it was a more compelling product than Georgia was. I, I don't know. I can't say because I never really saw a lot of AWA. Like, AWA stuff really never got out there in the t- in the tape trading circles the way Georgia Florida WWF did. I mean, I know what I know for the most part by you know reading what I read in the magazines. But well, look at the guys. They, Just look at the guys who are putting my back on their roster. But I mean, yeah, these are announcers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, though, they were a lot like the WWF. It was a slow paced promotion. But they did extremely well at the gate, and as evidenced by this show, drawing 18,000. I'm amazed by that number. The two guys in the main event are over 100 years old. And in 1984, they were still doing well. It took a while for people to figure out that the AWA, the fans, that the AWA just wasn't going to be the same. Main event for this show, Nick Bockwinkle defends the AWA title against Mad Dog Vashon, who defeated Bockwinkle by disqualification. It dawned on me maybe five minutes ago that this show is available on WWE Network, and I could have checked it out beforehand, but I didn't. Um, One promotion is having Hulk Hogan as its number one contender. This promotion is having Mad Dog Vashon, who has to be at least 50 years old by now. as 54. 54, okay as their number one contender, there are problems down the road. With a win, he beat your champion, who, by the way, is 49. I was sitting there thinking, how far back could I possibly go where these two could possibly be in the main event together? Late 50s? I'm trying to think, is there a territory they were both in, like in you know, uh, San Francisco maybe, 
did uh, Vashon have a run in San Francisco at some point where he may have been in with Nick uh, or in Maybe L.A. or Georgia. something? Maybe Georgia, that they could have like a main event in 1958. 74. You know what, though? Here's the thing. The AWA was a very unique territory in that the fans embraced guys like Mad Dog Vashon, Baron Von Raschke. They embraced those characters. I mean, Mad Dog Vashon, yeah, he's old, man. He's 52. But he's still Mad Dog Vashon. Like, I think you yeah, could do it, a one and done with him. And I know this contradicts what I just said about the Sheik. But the Sheik wasn't embraced in Atlanta. Mad Dog was embraced in, in Minnesota. You can't give him a win. I, know. You can't, I mean, you can't give him a win. It's like, it's like having Bruno get a win over Hogan. You know I mean, what? what are you doing? Here, here's my excuse. Here's my AWA excuse. Maybe exactly 30 days earlier. They got a telegram from Hulk Hogan saying, I'm not coming back. Maybe. And that, you know, I'm sure this was probably they had it planned as Hulk Hogan against Nick Bockwinkle. But Hogan's gone and you're in. OK, let's just get this show out there and figure out what we're doing down the road. And, it, you know, if you lose Hogan, OK, you put in Mad Dog for the one night and you get away with it. You get through the show. Did he grab Mad Dog, too? Oh, no. Oh, yes, he did. As a matter of fact. Not too long from now, in, in like 19, in August or July, Mad Dog came in, and more on that later. But yeah, Mad Dog, Vashon, and Mr. Wrestling 2 both came in, and I don't believe either one of them got, even got on TV. That's like robbing somebody then going back to make sure you haven't forgotten anything. Yeah, this is terrible. I, I mean, they're, they're just, they're taking Vashon away from the AWA just to make sure the AWA doesn't have him. They took two away from Georgia just to make sure Georgia didn't have them. Next show, and, and more on that in a minute, the old Charlotte Coliseum, Christmas night, 1983. It looks like Charlotte's getting what Greensboro got uh, about a month earlier. John Bonello in the opener defeats Tony Russo. Sean, you knew something about John Bonello that I did not. I was hoping we didn't get to this. You have now have me paranoid. It's one of those things where I mentioned it and everyone was like, what are you talking about? I was like, oh, shoot. This is a conversation we had before the show. So there was a referee named John Bonello in the WWF in the early 80s who uh, had a bit of a criminal issue where I, I think he he attempted to purchase a hitman to kill his wife. And the hitman was an undercover cop. Wah, wah. I do not know if it's the same guy. <laughs> But uh, uh, the that second I saw the name, I'm like, running around. That's what I'm thinking. I just got nervous. I was about to tell you, and you're, I, I was expected to hear you go, "Oh, of course." You've never heard that before. But yeah, you and Lou going, "What?" I was like, "Oh shoot, I got this right, didn't I?" Nah, I mean, you know <laughs> what? Right so now, much but... goes on in the wrestling business that a guy, you know, a prelim guy like John Bonello who becomes a referee. I mean, he's not going to be the first guy you remember doing something crazy. Uh, and this is against Tony Russo, who is the uh, the shortest non midget, the opening card guy from Memphis for like thirty years. He was in the WWF for a while in in eighty two, and I, I had no idea why he was there. He was very short, uh, rather fat. I mean, he was just a TV guy, but I have no idea why they would use him. But anyway, I, I guess John Bonello was tired of losing arguments to his wife, and he came up with the wrong idea. Vinny Valentino defeats Gene Anderson. This made me think of a question to ask Sean. I saw Gene Anderson in 1984 after Georgia 
got bought out. Now they're on at seven in the morning and Oli brings back Gene and they bring back the Anderson brothers, the 1984 version of the Anderson brothers. And it, it made me ask Sean, when it comes to a combination of just looking old and not being in shape, who is the worst wrestler that you have ever laid eyes on? Well, I mean, I, your point is taken. I said Bulldog Brower because I really don't like Bulldog Brower. He just Bulldog Brower is definitely in the conversation for number one. Uh, but your point with Gene is uh, well taken because I remember to go back to Oli's book. He told he had a bit in there, and it was it wasn't like Gene had one thing that was unhealthy. It was just everything. He, they were listening to this radio. He told the story about how they're driving and they're listening to this radio show talking about the three worst things you can do for your heart are having too much caffeine, too much sugar, and too much nicotine. <laughs> and as that report comes down, Oli looks next to him and he sees. Gene scarfing down little chocolate donuts like Belushi had in the commercial where he's training for the Olympics, smoking a cigarette and drinking a, like a large coffee. And he's like, Gene, did you hear the radio? Okay, so Gene, like even basically all video of Gene, unfortunately, because from about 78 on, he really started getting rough. Uh, it always looks bad. He has that kind of twitch, which I guess he even had when he was healthy. But he can barely move here. Well, what is the point of this match? Are they trying to kill Valentino or, I mean... Even if he beats Gene, it looks bad. You roll Gene Anderson out there on a house show on the second match down. I guess it's not the end of the world because he really was a big deal in the Carolinas. Uh, And the Carolinas tended to protect guys like this. I mean, I'm sure Gene needed a paycheck or at least could have used one. But my answer to the who was the, you know, the worst looking wrestler you've ever seen in terms of just being old and just being out of shape. There was a guy in the WWF, and he wrestled Madison Square Garden in the opener in 75, Tony Altimore. Like, (laughs) I couldn't believe how goddamn fat and old he was, and they would still put him in the ring, like, even later in the 70s, because he was a referee. If they needed a body to wrestle, like, one of the referees would just be the referee for every match. And they'd shovel Tony Altimore out there. So there's your answer for me. But again, Gene Anderson, if anyone took him, I would not argue with them. Next for, those, for those who need an image of Tony Altimore, picture the uncle when you were a kid that you were hoping didn't come over, <laughs> but did come over. And, and he had all the stuff. He would do like the He, he had like that uh, dark hair, but those two really gray, bushy uh, sides of his hair and the sideburns and he would insist on doing all these hand signals as he's wrestling it was like someone wrestling in 1932 Ugh. when people say oh i long for the old days of wrestling yeah. you know i'm like okay well here's tony altimore wrestling at yeah. madison square garden dear lord all right wahoo mcdaniel against barry orton barry orton's known for all the wrong stuff uh not that he did anything wrong but Barry Orton, I thought, was a hell of a talent. I'm surprised he didn't get further in the business. Didn't they just turn Wahoo's arm to, uh, to quote Bob Orton, to mush just a couple weeks earlier before this? How was he um, back so fast? I thought they busted his arm. Wahoo? I mean, I know he wrestled at Starcade. Right. They broke oh, his arm right. at Starcade. Okay. Uh, apparently, they're, maybe he's doing an, an angle with the cast. Who knows? So I'm guessing Barry's here getting some, and you're right, Barry was a very good worker. I don't know, again, he was kind of missing that something, but as far as someone you needed to get somebody else over, Barry was fantastic. 
he was a good talker. He needed a better body. Uh, yeah. I'm thinking that he is working, kind of getting off of that angle. The uh, Wahoo's going after Barry in attempt for what Bob did to him. Probably. Now, WWF at this point wasn't going to have interest in Orton other than what they actually brought him in for in, I want to say, fall of 84. He was just, you know, he wasn't a jobber per se, but he was like that tiny little next step up from like being a total jobber. And that's oh, all he made? ever was there. Oh, Barrio, but he did it very well. Yeah. Wahoo McDaniel, is this a guy that WWF would have had interest in early 1984, in your opinion? No, because they had him, as far, as far as they're concerned. They didn't have him, of course. But uh, they're probably looking at Wahoo and seeing Chief J. Mm, Chief J, was, was, his career was over. I mean, I think he, his last wrestling match was August 84. There was a big age difference between the two. Mm, no, there wasn't. But I mean, then throw out the fact that Wahoo had a, a major beef, apparently, with Vince Sr. You know, that, all right, that was a long time ago. Maybe Vince Jr. can say, okay, well, that's, you know, water under the bridge. I really believe if the WWF had brought in Wahoo McDaniel, he would have been just another, like, Mad Dog Vashon, another uh, Mr. Wrestling 2, just another guy that they're taking for the sake of taking, and they would have no idea what to do with him. Even in the Carolinas, it's not like yeah. they did something with two in Georgia. It's not like they did something with the Sean in Minnesota. They didn't pick up guys who are older. They never, virtually never did. If you look at all these cards, that's why the AWA is left with a bunch of guys who are like late 40s and 50s. Because they left those guys alone, for the most part. Unless you were bringing somebody in for a town. Like the crush from Milwaukee, or, you know, uh, if you go to Montreal, you bring Mad Dog in. Oh, that goes. But for the most part, he left those guys alone. Wahoo was just everything that they weren't. Uh, yeah, but that, I mean, that didn't stop them. They, they no, it didn't, but they, I would say the older thing was the bigger issue. Uh, yeah, true. Angelo Mosca defeats Don Kernodal. We were just talking uh, about this, this on Twitter. Don Kernodal was such a talented guy, yet in 1983, I mean, he got about as much push in the WWF as Johnny Rods or Baron McKill Cicluna, I never understood how or why he did that tour. But he's just back to Mid-Atlantic. Like, I mean, he's been there less than a month. He finished up WWF in October or November. Um, paycheck, I guess. I got, did we talk about Orton and uh, Orton Jr.? Because I wanted to ask about Bob Orton about one thing. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I, yeah, I skipped over two matches. I'll tell you, let's do this one first. Angelo Mosca... Right is apparently just, I don't know, right now he looks like just another guy in the mid-Atlantic area, and soon he would be in the WWF. And again, a lot of these cards, they're kind of bringing guys in because you've just filled, you know, you just finished off all your huge angles. So you're kind of bringing guys in to see what's going to work. So you're going to have some guys in and out. I never really, I, Mosca a few years ago was uh, pretty good. I have, I guess you kind of, at his age, how old is he here? Oh, I, he, I don't know, but he's old enough to have a son in the business. He's, you know yeah. what, he's got to be a late 40s at his very earliest. This is the spot where you're looking for the highest paycheck, because how many more you know, shots do you have? You know what, though? I mean, Mosca, for one, I'm looking up his age. He's originally from Waltham. As we know, he was born in 37. So he is, he's, okay, he's like mid, late 40s. It seems to be one of those. 
bringing these guys, it was almost gratuitous. I'm trying to think if he got a push to the top of the card a couple shots, and then they decided to grab him. That seems to be what happened. Like what happened with Vashon. They bring back Vashon, and all of a sudden they need him. They they had a role for Mosca. Mosca was a big, big deal in Toronto. And in 84, they had a, a law in Canada where the shows, like, they wouldn't let their television be dominated by American reruns. You had to have Canadian content. So for their all-star wrestling show, it was recorded, I want to say, in Hamilton, Ontario, and they brought Mosca in as the color commentator. Now, wrestling is a sport known for having some unbelievably bad color commentators, and Mosca is at the very bottom of the list. We're talking, he's every bit as bad as Pete Doherty, he's every bit as bad as Mike McGurk. He was unbelievably bad. He wasn't the most eloquent promo, if memory serves. It was a lot of grunting and yelling. Yep. And telling they're going to, like, you know, break my arm. I'm picturing, I remember hearing Don Green, the, the old um, the Memphis wrestler. You hear him doing some old cards, and he has this incredibly deep, intimidating, growly voice. But he's, like, calling the action, trying to sound enthusiastic like the good babyface announcer. I'm picturing that. Did he try to did he at least try to be a heel announcer? I have never heard this. No, he 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 totally tried to be a babyface. It was Canada, yeah. and he's the ultimate babyface. Yeah, I guess. Canada. Yeah, he was Pauly from uh, Goodfellas. You know that was, that was his style of of you know that's who he was. But yeah, I, I we say it doesn't work, but it's one of those things that if you're not from Toronto, you wouldn't understand. So yeah, I mean, he played for the, for the CFL team up sure. there. All right, Bob Orton Jr. over Mark Youngblood. Bob Orton Jr. Had been with the WWF in 82. He would quickly find himself back in the WWF. I, I want to say he was there by April. They treated Bob okay. And well-deserved. I like Bob. I like him as a worker. I'm actually surprised to see him here. Because um, when did he leave? Uh, I want to say March, April, 84. I was going to say he must be uh, heading out the door. Um, so I'm kind of almost, well, well they I would have had him. At oh, they didn't point, know? No, that they, there's no way they could have known. I mean, and they had just done the big turn with him and Dick Slater uh, collecting the bounty on Ric Flair. I was going to say, he's your most overheal then, right now. Uh, now nah. Oh, still oh. Valentine, probably still the Briscoes, still Slater. But, I mean, that after those uh, guys, okay, Slater, well. yeah. I would say Slater, yes. But you forget, Bob was the guy when they did the angle. Bob was the guy who was like all hooked up to the Flair family. He's the one they had the pictures of Bob holding, you know, Reed and all the younger kids and stuff like that. Bob was the traitor. Yeah, that that's true. And Mark Youngblood, let's talk a little bit about him. A talented guy. I liked him. At this point, like the whole and, and this had been a big wrestling gimmick going back to the 50s where you have the Native American guy go out with the, you know, the most outlandish gimmick possible. And that was kind of coming to a close, you know, the whole, that gimmick, it's best days were well behind it. I always wondered why Mark Youngblood did not just go back to being Mark Romero, Hispanic guy. Uh, I guess I didn't. I mean, what, what do you think the ceiling for him is? I mean, he was okay. He was getting Wahoo's rub here, but I mean, aside of that, you know what? He he definitely had a fairly low ceiling. There's no way this guy is going to be a, a top guy anywhere because he didn't have a great body, wasn't a great talker. But, you know, he's, I keep saying this. He was a fairly good-looking guy and 
without the Native American gimmick, you know, I think it, what I'm saying is I think at this point it's holding him back. I, I see what you're saying, and you're probably right, but say they do what you say, <laughs> where's your sin league again? I mean – Yeah. Uh, no, you're right. I mean I'm not saying this guy was going to be, you know, main event against Hulk Hogan in Toronto. All right, the assassins, the anti-WWF guys, defeated Dory Funk Jr. and Rufus R. Jones by DQ. There cannot be three guys, four guys that the WWF you would think would be less interested in than the Assassins, Funk, and Jones. But then Dory Funk Jr. shows up in early 86 and uh, late, it was like late 85 in the WWF. So what do I know? And pushed them. Um, I saw yeah. Dory live at this point. I saw, what was the match? It was uh, Haas and, um, and Dory against, and I'll be honest with you, I didn't even know who Dory was. Dory was Haas. Was, uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't know the background, though. I did not okay. know enough about yeah, that he was the world champion and all the other stuff. Uh, I just knew he was Terry's, you know, pain in the ass brother. Um, and it was against JYD and Hogan was the main event. And, yeah, they actually did push him. But, I mean, this is uh, Rufus is ancient here. I mean, Rufus was getting pushes in Mid-Atlantic in the 70s. Yeah, Rufus uh, was way out of shape. And he was old there. Jody's old. Who's the, the other assassin here? Is it Hercules or yeah, Hernandez? Yeah. So I mean, I, when does Hercules go over? Hernandez eventually got unmasked. He in '84 he went to Mid South. In '85 he went to Florida, and then I want to say September October '85 he went to the WWF and had Fred Blassie as his manager. I must be maddening trying to book and sitting there looking around the locker wondering who's going next. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely that was. That was the point of tuning in to like TNT on Tuesday night if you weren't doing anything else to see who else the WWF has grabbed from another one of these promotions. Before we move on to the next match, rumor I heard a long time ago that had Terry not left the WWF right after WrestleMania 2, they were going to do a Funks versus British Bulldogs feud. I'm intrigued. Yeah, they, they were going to. Not right afterwards, but like that summer, they were going to run an angle, and Terry pretended to blow out his knee at WrestleMania 2 because he wanted to go home. What do you think would happen if the Bulldogs tried some of their shenanigans with the Funks? Uh, I'll tell you what, both Terry and Dory had reps as guys not to be messed with. I don't think it would have been a problem, though. I mean, I know Terry and uh, Tom Billington always got along. Yeah, probably Tom, Tom at least was smart enough to realize I'm not messing with these guys. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. Jimmy Valiant against the great Kabuki. Kabuki was supposed, I heard a long time ago, Kabuki was supposed to come to the WWF like late 82, early 83 and feud with Jimmy Snuka. He was going to be managed by Captain Lou Albano. He strikes me as even before expansion, not a WWF guy because he he didn't have the size. He didn't have the musculature, but they love the gimmick. I have given this feud. Um, I, this is is it. This is part. Of, is this part of the Paul Jones feud yet? I don't think so, but I could be wrong. I'm trying. Who managed? No, wait. Gary Hart it was managed Gary Kabuki, Hart Kabuki, so okay. it wasn't part of that. But anyway, Jimmy Valiant's run here is uh, later on. It kind of turned into a parody, but at this point, this Jimmy was very important here because if you look at the rest of this card, you're having all kinds of flux. Dory's going to his booker. So when did Dory leave as the booker? Because you're bringing in Dusty pretty soon here, too. Yeah, Dusty came in June or July. I want to say July 84 is when he came in as booker. For the next four or five months, Jimmy is pretty much your anchor. 
because you had to have it. You're, you're, you just had too much flux, too many guys coming and going. They even had a kind of pseudo little, not a pay-per-view, but um closed circuit event with him, the Boogeyman Jam. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm intrigued by the idea of Jimmy Valiant in the WWF. And everyone just said, oh, my God, no, never. I mean, never say never with the WWF. They brought in the, the, the sheep herders as the bushwhackers. I mean, I could see Jimmy as as what he was in the NWA, just, you know, mid-card relief that the kids just liked. I, I don't know. I, I can see a universe where this happens. The problem is you're going to have a couple people who are going to remember Jimmy as he was. And they're going to be like, oh, my God, is he OK? Uh, you know what, though? There, were, there was such a transition in wrestling fans. When the Hulk Hogan era started, there wouldn't have been enough to be concerned with. I mean, Jimmy yep. Valiant hadn't been in the WWF since 1979. I know that wasn't that long ago. It was only five, six years. Yeah, but I mean, most of that audience had been run off. And, and the ones that hadn't been run off couldn't be run off because they were hardcore fans. He uh, was Dog, far more important here than he would have been there. I agree with that. Dog collar match. Once again, Roddy Piper defeats Greg Valentine and somehow does not wind up with the United States title, this had to be one of Roddy's final appearances for JCP. It might, as a matter of fact, I'll bet it was his last. And Greg was about to follow him out too, not long afterwards. This was uh, probably they get in this match. They went around the horn with it, and since Greensboro got it, you had to give it to Charlotte too. Uh, again, the reason Roddy didn't get the belt was because uh, these were all considered um, non-sanctioned events. So yeah. even if he does win, you don't have a title change. Which kind of, you know, I liked how they did that. It added to, you know the violence of it. But after a while, I, doing it once is fine. Doing it around the horn, I could see where he's like, okay, I get the point. All right. Uh, and Valentine would soon be turned babyface. I wonder how that would have gone over had Greg not left uh, for the WWF soon thereafter. He would, I mean, he was gone like February. It's what wrestling has an old saying that the better you are as a babyface, the better you will be as a heel and the better you are as a heel. The better you will be as a babyface, despite the fact that he was billed as the son of the legendary Johnny Valentine, and he had you know, proven he was a tough guy, certainly had the fans' respect, I don't think Greg Valentine would have gotten over as a babyface. No. No, because he would have been into it. He, some guys enjoy being a heel. We've had this discussion. Some guys can do both, but some guys just like – Dennis Condry is always the example I use here. Dennis Condry just has a bit of nastiness to him that almost prevents him from being a completely effective babyface. Unless it's one of those things where you hate the other team so much more that you're like, oh, cool. Evil Dennis is going to go get them. Then Dennis turns into a babyface. But that's almost because his heel persona comes in handy. Hey, just Greg's a natural heel. He, he is. But you know what? He, the other side of the coin is that Valentine had been primarily in the mid-Atlantic area since late 76 early 77 and he was due for a turn i i think you know what maybe the wwf did everyone a big favor by yeah. not letting us see how that turned out and finally yeah. last match we're going to talk about cage match once again a rematch from starcade ricky steamboat and jay youngblood defeated jack and jerry briscoe jay youngblood uh his troubles were starting to catch up with him he you know, passed away in early 85. He, um, uh, what was I going to say? He was in Florida wrestling there. Like the mid-Atlantic area wasn't using him anymore. At some point, they put him in a full body outfit and called him the Renegade. Uh, once again, we're talking about alter egos. Um, 
it, you know, base, it looked to me like they put him in a full body outfit to cover up his body, which is never a good sign. And so he's not a guy that WWF would ever be interested in. Ricky Steamboat, on the other hand, clearly was. Why did did Ricky retire because he didn't want to be part of this team anymore? Because with the part that you were just saying was getting the better of him, too. I don't think that's why he retired. I don't think you let Ricky Steamboat retire because you refused to let him out of a tag team. Yeah, I think true. Ricky really was tired of the road. He was married. He wanted to raise a family. He wanted to be home every night. And he thought his gym was going to be a successful business venture. But I mean, there's an expression in the wrestling business. It's like the Hotel California. You can check out, but you can never leave. What plan did they have for Ricky if he stayed? I think they were going to go around the horn with him against Ric Flair in what would have started as a babyface. Yeah, what would have been a babyface series. But yeah, Ricky was out of the business soon after this. And Jack and Jerry Briscoe, I was very surprised to see them debut on WWF TV even before the, the Hulk Hogan era started. They did not seem like WWF types. However, they came up here as a tag team. They were strictly, you know, boots and trunks guys, no gimmick whatsoever. And dadgummit, they got over. Where else were they going to make more money at that stage of their career? Nowhere. These are smart businessmen, just like the Funks. You know, these are, they, they took the correct payday, just like Harley was. These guys are no fools. They're going to, you know, I mean, you wish you could have the old days back, I guess. But, I mean, they see where the thing's going. And they went for the big payday at the end of their career and God bless them for it. Yeah, and Jack Briscoe, you know, God bless him. Supposedly, there was a snowstorm in Hartford or New Haven, and they were on their way to Detroit, and Jack just got up, walked to the ticket counter, and exchanged his ticket for one to Tampa, and he was never part of the wrestling business ever again. Jack Briscoe in 1985, I think he did this January or February 85, he had one more run left in him in Florida. He could have stayed close to home, and he could have made some money, and he just decided not to do it. Well, there's also – I remember the old story with Joe DiMaggio when he went hustling after ball in the outfield. It was toward the end of his career, and he got back to the dugout. One of the younger players go, why are you still you know, killing yourself? It's a game in the middle of, you know, middle of May, and you know, yeah, we're going to make the – it's going to be fine. We're going to make the uh, league championship. And he goes, because someone may be watching me for the first time. I think there's something to that to Jack, too. That he did not want to go down like Willie Mays did at the end. Uh, I can see that. Willie Mays, his last season really wasn't that bad if you look at it. But he had a couple of embarrassing moments in center field during the the 73 playoffs. And that's kind of what burned that into our memories. But And and to wrap it up, Jerry Briscoe, uh, once Jack left, he became a road agent for the WWF and has been employed by them for the last 35 years. So anyway... Why don't you wrap up the show? Sean Goodwin, thank you for being the convivial co-host that you are and doing a great job every week. I want to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, for all the great work he does. I want to thank everyone for listening, and please tune in again next week where we have another Wicked Good podcast. And with that, my name's John McAdam. Thank you for listening, and this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network.